Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Last week we saw these ugly, jealous, envious Pharisees coming at Jesus hard, didn't we? They hated the attention that Jesus was receiving, so they concocted a, an especially calculated test. They simply asked a question in Matthew 19.3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Without understanding the culture, we can't understand just how explosive this question was. A generation before, there had been a huge debate between these two schools of thought concerning valid reasons for divorce. Uh, Rabbi Hillel had argued that a man could divorce his wife for absolutely any reason at all, anything that he wanted to divorce it for. And Rabbi Shammai argued that divorces were sinful unless the wife was guilty of some sexual sin. Although that debate had been in the relatively recent past, the Hillelite school had won the day. And virtually everyone believed that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. Anyone who held the stricter Shammite view was considered a narrow-minded, unrealistic idealist who just didn't understand the real world. In essence, like we looked said last week, a right-wing extremist, so to say. They knew that Jesus had espoused something akin to that Shammai view in the Sermon on the Mount. So this question was designed to accomplish one of two despicable outcomes. They either would uh, reduce his popularity by exposing his extremist views on this huge crowd that was around, or possibly even get him killed. Because the tetrarch over Judea was Herod Antipas, who had enticed his brother's wife Herodias to get a divorce and marry him. John the Baptist had spoke out against Herod and Herodias for that unlawful marriage, and ultimately Herodias convinced Herod to have John the Baptist beheaded, and they hoped for a similar outcome for Jesus. Well, they had to be thrilled when Jesus went even farther right than the Shammite tradition. Jesus took them straight to the Scriptures and not to his interpretation of the much-debated text in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. He, he took them to other Scriptures, to creational truths in Genesis 1, 27 and 2, 23-24 in verses 4-6. through Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So what Jesus says here looks suspiciously like a prohibition on all divorce. A zero tolerance view. And that was completely heard of in all of modern Israel. And that's where we pick up this morning in Matthew 19, 7 through 9, where they challenge Jesus with bad exegesis. Matthew, 7, 9, uh, Matthew 19, 7 through 9. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, fornication, porneia. Many of your versions may say something different there. Saving for the cause of immorality, we'll call it. And marries another woman, commits adultery. We're going to look this morning at the Pharisees' rebuttal, Jesus' reputation of their rebuttal, and then his reassertion. So let's begin... Uh, Sometimes, like we saw last week, every question is not really a question, is it? Last week they asked a question that was really a test. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking. This week we get another question, but this question isn't a test, it's an accusation. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? In this rebuttal, we see the Pharisees indict Jesus and cite Scripture to do so. 
How are they indicting Jesus? Well, indict, first of all, that means to charge with a fault or offense. It was one thing for Jesus to take the outdated wrong side of history interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Siding with the unpopular Shammai interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. That's what they hoped Jesus would do, but Jesus went even further to the right than they expected. If they understood Jesus right, he was denying the existence of a righteous divorce altogether. And they saw that as a contradiction of Moses. The Pharisees have repeatedly accused and blamed Jesus of wrongdoing throughout Matthew, haven't they? Uh, they blamed him for blasphemy, for claiming to be able to forgive sin in 9.3. They, for eating with tax collectors and sinners in chapter 9.11. Casting out demons by the power of demons in 9.34 and 12.24. Being a glutton and a drunkard in 11.19. Not leading his disciples according to Moses' law in 12.2 and 15.2. Breaking the Sabbath in 12.10. Not paying the temple tax in 17.24. But now they're accusing Jesus of rejecting what they understood as a clear teaching of Moses himself. And it's difficult to overestimate the severity of that accusation. They saw Moses as the great deliverer who led the people out of Egypt. They saw him as the one who gave them manna out of heaven. They saw him as the lawgiver. We know those that was actually God that led them out of the wilderness. We know it was God that actually gave them the manna out of heaven. We know it's really God's law. They even called it Moses' law. To go against Moses, that's a serious accusation. And Jesus knew that accusation was coming from the beginning of his ministry. Do you remember in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the, uh, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. He knew, I'm going to be correcting how they interpret the Scriptures and they're going to think I'm espousing something wrong. Abolishing the law. That's not what I'm doing, but that's what they're going to think. I'm restoring the law. They're going to think I'm abolishing it. And that's exactly what they're blaming him for here. Is abolishing the law. They're blaming him for disagreeing with Moses. They always, uh, people always do that when you stand against deeply entrenched tradition, don't they? You can try your best to show them, no, no, listen to what the scriptures say, but if they've got a deeply entrenched tradition, they'll blame you for being the one that's wrong, even if you're showing them right from the scriptures, won't they? I'm sure you've experienced that, haven't you? And those accusations have followed Jesus, and they'll continue to throughout his ministry. But in order to give their accusation credence, they don't just throw it out there, they cite Scripture. Jesus asked them, have you not read and cited God's creational design for marriage from Genesis? And now they hit Jesus with the same, don't you know your Bible kind of question. Oh, oh you're going to avoid our text and jump to something completely off-topic like Genesis. That's the spirit of the question. You're going to go to Genesis. Well, what about what we've actually cited here in Deuteronomy 24? Do the Scriptures contradict themselves? So you're going to go back to something that's not really talking about divorce and go to what Genesis says about marriage, and you're avoiding the topic. Do you not believe Moses? That's the heart of the question. What do you do with this seminal text for this already settled debate between the Hillelite and the Shamite traditions, Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Yeah, it says that she can do that. It's, it's right there. Of course Jesus is familiar with the text. The question is a matter of interpretation, isn't it? What does the text mean and how does it fit with the rest of Scripture? That's our task and everyone's task. If you're going to be a student of this Bible, I don't know if you've noticed, it's kind of thick. There's a lot of words in it. And holding it all together and recognizing how it all interplays is a very, it's hard work. And the easy thing is to go what I've always heard or what I've always been taught. That's what most people do, isn't it? Haven't you found that 90% of the disagreements you have with Bible believers is not due to their ignorance of things the Bible says, they'll know the texts, but ignorance of what it means in context and how it fits in the whole of biblical revelation? Have you found that? How do so many people who read the Bible devoutly, religiously, daily even, come to such vastly different interpretations? It amazes me. I mean, how in the world isn't everyone already a Reformed Baptist by this point, right? But... Well, it's, it's nothing new. People have always read the Scriptures and twisted them beyond recognition. 
partially because some of the texts are difficult to understand. And rather than doing the hard work of exegesis, they make the scriptures fit what they already believe or what they already want to do. Second Peter 3.16 There are some things in them, he's talking about Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, and listen to this, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. They have the scriptures, but they interpret them wrongly. They twist them. The ignorant and unstable twist them to their own destruction. You have to beware. Not everyone who quotes scripture is even a Christian. Not everyone who acts as a teacher is trustworthy. You've got to have discernment. I would advise you turn TBN off. Okay? So much... Such shysters, charlatans, heretics. If you listen and you have discernment, they're heretics. But man, they quote scripture. And they'll quote it like crazy. They'll quote tons of scripture out of context. Not in line with the actual narrative of scripture. And espouse doctrines and laws that aren't even in the Bible at all. I mean, ask them. If you'll send them $100, you're going to get $10,000 back. Guaranteed. Not earn your money back, though. (laughs) Right? 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15 Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. What better way to make yourself look like the righteous one than just quote Scripture? People quote Scripture to defend abortion today. They quote Scripture to defend homosexuality today. They quote Scripture to defend everything. And these people quoted Scripture to defend divorce, didn't they? Satan himself used Scripture to tempt Jesus, didn't he? He said, it is written, right? If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. He will give His angels charge concerning you. But the temptation was out of line. It was not. And, and Jesus, knowing the whole of Scripture and holding it together, said, It has also written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. And now the Pharisees, those who were considered to be experts in the law, are acting like Satan, citing Scripture but twisting its meaning. So we turn now to Jesus' refutation in verse 8. He said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts... Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. People often point to when Jesus didn't answer his accusers. Uh, That was the exception, not the rule. Uh, An answer is often appropriate. And until Jesus was on trial in Jerusalem, he almost always gave an answer, and often with a rebuke of his own. Here we see an accusation against the Pharisees and a correction of their interpretation of Scripture. Let's start with his accusation. He accuses them of hard-heartedness. Look at verse 8. Because of the hardness, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. There's two easily missed yet important nuances in this verse. Notice first, Moses permitted it because of your hardness of heart, he says. It doesn't say because of their hardness of heart. He says because of your hardness of heart. We would expect it to say theirs because these men that he's talking to, they weren't even born when Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. But Jesus is telling them that The same obstinance that characterized the Old Testament Jews who were forced to walk in the wilderness for 40 years, the ones who the Lord complained to Moses about in Exodus 32.9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, an obstinate people, a hard-hearted people. Sure, they were verbally verbally zealous for the law of God, but their hearts were far from God. And this this theme is a common one for Jesus against the Pharisees. Remember in 15, 7 through 9, he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips. You're quoting scripture to refute me from Deuteronomy 24. You honor God with your lips, but your heart is far away from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You, You guys, you have hard hearts that don't love God. The same hearts like they had hard hearts that didn't love God when they were in the wilderness after being brought out of Egypt. And you think, I would be better if I would have been in their shoes, I would have been better. That's, that's still your hearts. 
still who you are as well. Just like Old Testament Israel offering sacrifices and burning their incenses while not loving God, nothing has changed. And, and notice also, not only he says your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce, but it's also a collective heart. Notice again, it doesn't say because of the hardness of your hearts. It doesn't say that. It's your is plural, but heart is singular. Because of your, y'all's, hardness of heart. It's because of the hardness of heart of this whole people. It's a whole generation with a hard heart. He's dealing with them covenantally. He's putting them all together as a group. The Jews as a whole, past and present at this time, have hardened their hearts against truth. And as a result, judgment is coming on this generation of Jews. It's coming to its full measure. It started way back there and it's, it's came to this point where I've sent all these prophets and all these wise men and you've rejected them all. That was their heart then and you still have that heart in you today. You collectively, you all have rejected the stone... And it's going to become the chief cornerstone, but you're going to be cast out. This whole generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up against this whole generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You're rejecting me because you're a generation that doesn't love God. He tells them even more directly in Matthew 23, 30-36. You all say, if you'd have been living in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city so that upon you might fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. That generation and all all the way back is one in the eyes and understanding of God. He's cutting them all off because of the hardness of your hearts. And he corrects their interpretation. Not only does he accuse them of being hard-hearted, he corrects their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. He corrects them here in two ways. First, he corrects their bad exegesis. Notice the change from their question to Jesus' answer. They asked, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus answers and says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Now, which one is right? Did Moses command a certificate of divorce or did he permit a certificate of divorce? We learn here an important hermeneutical lesson. Get ready for it. Actually read the text. That's important. You know how many people hold to doctrines? You know, God helps those that help themselves. And, you know, it's not there. It's not what the Bible says. And even when they quote scriptures, they'll quote them wrongly or out of context without what's before and without what's after. You've got to actually read the text. And to the text we go. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. You can turn there or you can just listen. Either one. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, do you see a command to give her a certificate of divorce anywhere in that text? You don't because it isn't there. It's just like promises to the modern state of Israel. It's just not there. It's not in the Bible. Okay? You can, you, I just read it, didn't I? There's no command to give a bill of divorce. You have to read it into the text because you'll never get it from the text. Moses didn't command divorce. Permitted isn't commanded. The text describes a man who has divorced his wife. 
and given her a bill of divorcement. That's where the story starts here, right? That's where it starts. It's a given. This has already happened. With the bill of divorce in hand, it, it is legal for the woman to marry someone else. No moral judgment, though, is made about the rightness or wrongness of the man's action in writing the bill of divorce, is it? There's no moral judgment, right? It says this has happened and it doesn't make a moral judgment about it. Nor is there anything in the text that tells us when it's okay for him to divorce his wife. It's not there. No, it's not there. If it ever is okay, the text tells us of a social norm that had developed and forbids one specific scenario. Now, if we, now in this we see two hypo, hypothetical situations in this Deuteronomy 24 scenario concerning the second husband. He divorces the woman also, or he dies. Now we get the only command in this text. She must not remarry the first husband. That's the only command given here, isn't it? Do you all see any other commands? It's the only one, isn't it? The whole force of the text is to make the man think twice before writing the bill of divorcement. To, fa- to paraphrase this section of Scripture, you might say, Husbands, you better think twice before rejecting your wife. Remember that once you've put her away and she's became the wife of another man, you can't get her back afterwards. Not even if the husband divorces her or if he dies. Once you've wrote her off, she's gone. You can't never get her back. So, this text that the Pharisees are using to justify divorce is actually written to discourage divorce. Right? It's written to discourage divorce. You better think twice about this. And they use it to say, Moses commanded us to give a bill of divorcement. No, no, he didn't. Quick soapbox to you men who aspire to, to teach. Real quick. You must get the text right. You've got to get the text right. You're speaking for the living God and how dare you put words in the mouth of God, declare a falsehood as a truth, or be ashamed of what the Word actually teaches. You've got to get the text right. And if you want to preach but you don't want to study enough to do the work to make sure you get it right, if you've got questions in your mind, or if if you've not wrestled with it enough to even have questions, sit down. Pharisees made themselves teachers of the law and it made them doubly as indictable. And that's exactly what you do when you make yourself a teacher, but you don't do the work. James 3.1 Do not let many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such will incur a greater condemnation or a stricter judgment. Soapbox ended. But Jesus refuted the false claim that these teachers of the law made about Moses commanding divorce and saying the only reason that he doesn't outright forbid it is due to their... This is sclerocardia. Amanda will appreciate this more than anybody in the room. Heart, cardia, sclerosis. Hardening of the heart. Your heart hardness. So Jesus roots divorce in hard heartedness. It isn't so much about people's attitude. What is hard heartedness? It's not so much about people's attitude toward one another. Cruelty or neglect. That's not what it is. But their attitude toward God. Think of Pharaoh whose heart was what? Hardened. And he refused to do what God called him to do. Exodus 7.13 and other verses. It's a term for rebellion against God. Divorce was taking place in defiance of God's stated intention for marriage. You won't, God intended to make you one flesh, an indissoluble union, and you have hardness of heart and you won't pursue that ideal. And since you won't, that's why Moses had to make civil provisions accommodating the practice. But it should have never had to be so. It was never God's intention for a marital union to be broken. How did this hardness of heart manifest itself leading to the allowance of divorce? Uh, It was allowed as a mercy to the women. That's why it was allowed. That's why it started and that's why it wasn't ever forbidden outright. Hard-hearted husbands or exhausted husbands who lacked the skill and character to deal with a truly difficult wife. Both, sometimes you've got the husband that's just hard-hearted. Sometimes you've got a, a wife that truly is a pill. And the man doesn't know how to shepherd her. And he's exhausted and exasperated. 
One or the other. And in either of those cases, he ends up, he's going to put her out of his house. There was little future in a patriarchal society for a woman that wasn't attached to some man. So she would try to contract a marriage with another man. Because there was no going to college and no getting a job. There was no climbing the corporate ladder for a woman because, newsflash, there's no corporations. Right? And even if there were, biblical gender roles were normative in that society. So the woman had to seek a new marriage or a new head. But when she did, many husbands would then callously claim that the woman was still their wife either because of jealousy or second thoughts or to punish her because she had been a bad wife. So when somebody else started to take her as his wife, he'd say, hey, that's my wife. And sometimes would push to have her executed and even the man who had now tried to marry her executed because he still had evidence that that's my wife, even though he had put her out. So until divorce, there was legally nothing that she could do about it. The solution was a legal provision to protect the woman by allowing her to marry someone else. And that legal provision was divorce. The essential formula of a divorce bill was, Low, thou art free to marry any man. That's how it was worded. Until the husband gave the wife a certificate of divorce, she was still his wife. When he had given the certificate, she was no longer recognized as his wife and he had no claim on her. Her position might still be difficult, but at least she was freed from any arbitrary reclaiming of her from the former husband when he became jealous or changed his mind. Divorce wasn't forbidden because the particulars were so impossible to unravel. Because there's not two or three witnesses to marital problems. Right? It's in your home. So we don't, it's so hard to adjudicate who's actually right and who's wrong. He said, she said, when there's only two witnesses and it's him and her. And finally, they had such hard hearts and just couldn't navigate it all. Okay, we'll allow a divorce to take place to protect the woman because we, she doesn't have much options. He still does and we've got to make sure that society can still go on. So it was a concession that shouldn't have existed but had to exist for a functional society. But it wasn't a good thing. And then he now doubles down on creational truths. Jesus has answered their rebuttal. He exposed their bad hermeneutics. And now he goes right back to the point that he's already made. If you want to understand God's intention for marriage, you have to go back to pre-fall revelation. What does he say here in verse 8? But from the beginning, it was not so. It has not been this way. He's referring back to verses 4 through 6, what he's already said that they're, they're trying to refute him for. Where, you know, his answer was still the right answer. From the beginning, God made them male and female, the strong to go and take the weak together to image God, to fulfill the dominion mandate. For that reason, the man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife. He cleaves to her and they become one flesh. They're no longer two but one flesh. And God's design is stated explicitly in Genesis 2. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Divorce is not part of God's perfect design. Moses permitted it, but he did so because sin can be so vile that divorce is to be preferred from continued chaos. But divorce is to be seen as the end result of ongoing sin that has already stained and strained a marriage. Isn't that right? D.A. Carson says, Any view of divorce and remarriage that sees the problem only in terms of what may or may not be done has already overlooked a basic fact. Divorce is never to be thought of as God-ordained, morally neutral option, as, but as an evidence of sin, as an evidence of hardness of heart. The fundamental attitude of the Pharisees to the question was wrong. They had a wrong starting point. If you start at the wrong starting point, guess what? You're going to end at the wrong ending point every time. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 was the scriptural basis for all current Jewish teachings on divorce. But Jesus looks past it as the most important teaching on a divorce and instead goes to the beginning. He doesn't look to a mosaic concession regulating divorce, but to Genesis 1 and to Genesis 2, showing God's original intention for marriage. We see here another hermeneutical lesson from Jesus. One, read the text. But the second one, we now see Jesus recognizing two different levels of ethical instruction. One, in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, it's instruction dealing with sin. What do we do when someone has sin? But 
in Genesis 1 through 2, we get a positive, positive statement of first principles. Jesus is saying that the original creational principle must take precedence over the later concession to human weakness or sinfulness. And thus the current Jewish teaching, which took Deuteronomy 24 as the basis for, for its understanding of divorce, was starting at the wrong place. If you get marriage right, you don't need to understand how divorce should be handled and who can marry whom at what time. We don't read the Bible asking, what can I get away with, but what is God's design and His intention? If you're always thinking, okay, when, when am I able to do this that I actually want to do? Alright, when, when do I get to follow my own heart's desires? When do I get to be true to my own self? When, if you start there, you're always going to be wrong. But if you say, what's God's intention? Where does God say we will be blessed? What does God say the fruitful, full life looks like? And, you, and that's your goal? You'll hit the target. This principle applies to more than just divorce. Our target is not identified by looking at texts which deal with situations where things have already gone wrong, but in statements which reveal the perfect will of God for our lives. You ever heard the saying, hard cases make bad law? That's true, and they make even worse ethics. That's always how Jesus approached things. You look at the Sermon on the Mount. The ethics of the kingdom are not understood by thinking of how evil might be contained and alleviated, but how to best discern and follow the good. When thinking about divorce, we're not to think about what might be permitted, as the Pharisees question, but on God's purpose for marriage. In this fallen world, there will always be a need to think through what we have to do in actual cases where things have gone wrong. That, that, that will be a necessary thing. But if that's where our ethical discussions begin, then the battle's lost before it started. Those who start from Deuteronomy 24 will see divorce as an expected normal thing, the question being only how it's to be regulated. R.T. France says this, he says, Those who start from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 will see any separation of what God has joined together as always as an evil. Circumstances may prove it to be the lesser evil, but it can never make it less of an, an infringement than the primary purpose of God for marriage. It might be the right thing in some broken world and broken situation. That might be what has to happen. But we can never say, oh, this is fine. It's not fine. It's not God's design. It's not how God intended things. And you say, well, there was an innocent party. Guys, you all live in a fantasy world. There ain't no innocent parties. You're not being true. You, you're not being honest with yourself. And in your honest times, you know, even if you've been in a divorce, I hate to tell you this, they may have been more wrong, but you're indictable and you're guilty. We know that, don't we? Absolutely. Calvin was very helpful on this. John Calvin says, For national laws are sometimes accommodated to the manners of men, but God, in prescribing a spiritual law, looked not at what man can do, but at what they ought to do. It contains a perfect and entire righteousness, though we lack the ability to fulfill it. That man, that man he says, who puts away his wife and gives her a bill of divorcement, shelters himself under the pretense of the law, but the bond of marriage is too sacred to be dissolved at the will, or rather at the licentious pleasure of men. Though the husband and the wife are united by mutual consent, yet God binds them by an indissoluble tie, so that they are not afterwards at liberty to separate. He's saying there might be, you might have to have laws on the books that accommodate divorce, just like Moses did in the civil law. But that's not to say that, there, that you can ever have this happen sinlessly. And that's the point. So now we get Jesus reasserting what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Finally, we hear what the Pharisees were likely expecting when they asked Jesus this question. Jesus says basically the same thing he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In 531 through 32, he says, It has been said, Whoever sends away his wife, let her give a bill of divorcement. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Before I get into this exception clause, which we're going to have to handle... I want to notice Jesus' authority. Notice what he says. And I say to you. Jesus never cowers from asserting his identity. There won't decide Moses as the highest authority. He's saying, hey, first of all, you're misreading Moses. And second of all, what I say matters. 
And I say unto you... He, he did that over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? You have heard it said of them of old, but I say to you, Jesus is the authority. He's a higher authority than the tradition of the elders. He's the prophet who would restore the true intention of the law. They accuse Jesus of ignoring Moses, but Jesus is claiming to be the prophet like Moses that Deuteronomy 18, 18 prophesied of. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak all that I command you. Hey, listen, you want to get it right? That's what I'm doing, guys. I'm the interpreter of Moses. And what I tell you is actually what will really, the righteousness that God requires. One greater than Moses has come. Remember in chapter 17, this is my beloved son. Moses and Elijah appeared in the mountain of transfiguration and then the voice comes out of the... Peter's going to build a tabernacle to Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And then God thunders, this is my beloved son. Hear you him. And then they lift up their eyes and what do they see? No one there anymore except for Jesus only. The but I say to you is heavy. But I say to you, it's the final authority. It's the word of Christ himself. Now let's get to that exception rule. The exception clause, as it's so often called. Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality. What is this word immorality here? Well, the word is pornea. We get the word pornography from it, don't we? Um, what's it mean? Well, you, you might think adultery. Well, that's an absolute impossibility. And the reason, well, there's several reasons. First, anybody who committed adultery got stoned to death. Deuteronomy 13.24, John 8.3-6. After being stoned to death, they would be way too dead to get divorced. Did you know that? So there, the, the exception clause wouldn't have been back in Moses' law because adultery was punishable by death. Secondly, pornea isn't the word that's generally translated as adultery. But more ki is. Pornea refers to all sorts of sexual sins, but most often it's used for fornication or premarital sex. Trying to make pornea and more ki have the same meaning as foolish because both are used in the same verses several times, often in lists of sin. Matthew 15, 19, for example. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, more ki, and fornications, pornea. They can't be the same thing. And if he meant adultery... Why didn't he use the word for adultery? Third, the Bible leaves out this exception clause in parallel passages. Mark 10, he doesn't use it. It's the same story being told, but in Mark and Luke's account, it doesn't say saving for the cause of. It's not there. It's only in Matthew's account. And fourth, well, I don't believe the disciples were Hillelites. You say, what do you mean? Well, if you take this passage to be referring to sexual sin that comes short of adultery, then the position is, in essence, the Shammai position. But yet, even the disciples seem shocked by the strictness of Jesus' position. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to them, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry at all. They seem to think he's done something stricter than they've ever heard of, don't they? You follow? I think that Jesus is actually talking about fornication or premarital sex. And I know that's confusing for us because premarital sex can't be a reason for divorce in our culture. But it was in Jewish culture of years ago. To understand this statement, we've got to look back to Matthew 1. And I think it's why that the exception clause is in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 1, 18-20, turn there. And we get a picture that their culture functioned differently than ours. This is the birth narrative of Jesus. And it says, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Are they married or betrothed? Which one? Betrothed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. So they've not consummated the relationship sexually yet. They've not came together yet. They're betrothed, but they've not came together yet. At that time, betrothal was a legal document. You... You betrothed yourself legally to someone and you were promised to that person and at some time she would become your wife in earnest but in that, inter- in that betrothal period you, were, you, weren't, you didn't live together and you weren't 
you weren't intimate with one another. But she was, but watch this. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, what does it call him? Her husband. You were still called husband and wife. Being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. He was going to, that send her away is a euphemism for divorce. It took a legal action to terminate the betrothal. Him being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child that has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She's not, she's not been unchaste. So in that culture, if you had paid the bride price for a virgin, and then she ends up pregnant... She's not a virgin. She's been with somebody else. You had the right to terminate the marriage with a bill of divorce and, Mo and Joseph could have gone and married someone else without committing any sin. So Matthew includes the exception clause to show that Joseph wasn't doing anything wrong in what he was doing with Mary. So if somebody commits fornication and you're in a betrothal period, you could terminate the divorce legally and it was fine and no adultery was... There was no, there was no guilt. So I'm, I'm not even sure if Jesus said the except for thing, or if that's a, a clarifying statement added by the Holy Spirit for through Matthew, it's a commentary, a narrative portion by Matthew, because in the other two, Jesus doesn't say it. So the shocking thing that, that they hear is, without this even exception clause, which I think actually should go back to chapter 1. Does all that make sense? Did everybody hold that together? That's what I think is going on here. So... Jesus' conclusion, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. There's two textual variants here. I, I hate bringing up textual variants, but you have to because I want you to trust the Bible in your lap. Amen? We want to trust the Bible in our laps. And, um, but, and I don't want you to think, well, we don't really know what the Word says. The variants, though, some of them say exactly what chapter 5 says, makes her commit adultery, and he who marries her who has been divorced commits adultery. So some of them copy what Jesus said earlier in Matthew, and some of the manuscripts copy say exactly the same thing as uh, Mark and Luke. We're not sure what happened, which scribe copied it wrong. The original documents, if you find that, let me know. We'll kind of check it and we'll know at that point. But we don't have the originals, but we've got... We know it's some version of this. But another ver benefit of this interpretation, of this being the, the exception clause being about premarital infidelity, is that it's classic Jesus outmaneuvering the Pharisees. They try to paint Jesus as a sinner, and he proves that they are. That's what I think he's doing. It's helpful to know how they applied their Hillelite divorce laws. They exploited the Scriptures, mining them for loopholes, in order to enable them to live out their lustful fantasies without technically breaking the law. That's what they wanted to do. Committing adultery was a clear violation of the Seventh Commandment. But what if I'm no longer married, they thought. And what if she's no longer married? Then I can have that man's wife instead of my own. And that's what they wanted. So if you notice in the Sermon on the Mount, it's if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. Remember that? And then the next portion is about taking a, wife, a woman that if you put away your wife and marry another, you've caused her to commit adultery. And whoever marries her that's been put away commits adultery. Remember that? So they had this plan. This is something they did. They wanted to do whatever their wicked hearts desired while remaining innocent because of a technicality of divorce and remarriage. Men who were discontent in their marriages and saw another woman that they desired would look for excuses to put away their wives. So they've got a wandering eye. They're married to their wife, but they, hey, I like his wife. They'd look at another man's wife and lust after her. And then they would devise a plan. I'll divorce my wife and I'll get her to do things that will make her husband be discontent with her so that he'll put her away. And then when we're both single, I can have that man's wife. And there's no adultery there. Jesus is saying, you ain't outmaneuvering God. You're not outsmarting God. The, your heart issue is all the same. You're, be, you're, you're violating your marital covenant because of your lust and wanting someone else. 
Sometimes even Roman law even allowed women to cut their own, cut out the charade of getting their husband to initiate the divorce. So Gentiles and non-devout Jewish women could pursue divorces in Roman courts. Jesus pursues, uh, mentions that in Mark 10, 12. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she's committing adultery. Both men and women were playing this game, trying to outsmart God. They went, about, they went about their swapping of spouses lawfully. And these blind leaders of the blind, these blind gods, these scribes and Pharisees who fancied themselves as experts in the law actually taught this godless practice was acceptable. They're basically daring Jesus to disagree in Matthew 19.3. Is it okay for us to put our wife away for any reason? Obviously, this perverted practice was not Moses and more importantly, God's intention but isn't that what moralists do? They look for loopholes. If you, if you want to think you're righteous, you'll take the Bible and twist it to make you think, hey, look, look, see, I'm not really sinning here. Have you ever done that? You justify your sins and you use Scripture to do so. Guys, be careful. Justify Your conscience condemns you and you, you man, I, I think this is okay. And you get right up to the line. This is the right line between right and wrong. And you'll get right up against it and you'll say, oh, I'm technically I'm not crossing the line. Uh, guys, your heart crossed the line a long time ago. A long time ago. That's what they did. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, those who think they can worship God and obtain salvation in terms of their own actions are always guilty of this error. That is why they never truly understand the Christian way of salvation. They think that as long as they don't do certain things and as long as they try to do certain good works that they can put themselves in the right they can put themselves right in the sight of God. In their minds, technically they were not committing adultery, but they were not to be judged by their minds, but by a holy God according to his intention of the law and not according to their own misinterpretation of the law. Jesus assures them, if you ignore and dishonor God's one flesh union, y'all are a bunch of adulterers. That's the point. You're, you're, you're ignoring the creational intention of marriage. You're a bunch of adulterers. Your technicality, your loopholes, all your scheming to make yourself feel righteous while you still do whatever your wicked hearts want, you're adulterers. You're not skating by. God still sees your heart and your heart is hard-hearted. And it's because of the hardness of your hearts there ever was divorce in the first place. You think you're going to create the culture that leads to the kingdom with hearts like that? MacArthur says, The strong implication of the statement, which the self-righteous Pharisees could not have missed, was that they themselves were guilty of proliferating adultery. You're teaching things that is making this whole community adulterous. Everybody's Hillelites. The whole of this whole generation's a bunch of adulterers because of what you've taught in your synagogues. That's what he's telling them. You've made an adulterous people. Adultery in their own lives, and worse still, Adulterers against God Himself. A sin with a sentence of the death penalty. The scribes and the Pharisees compromised, maligned the Old Testament laws concerning everything but including divorce. Matthew 5, 17-20 is appropriate to quote, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. These truths are difficult. But that's actually the point. Jesus sets the bar high because the bar is high. You want to get to heaven on your own works? You might as well climb to the moon on a rope of sand. That's Spurgeon. It's absolutely impossible. The bar is the holiness of God. The difficulty, no, the impossibility of a sinful person entering the kingdom of, of heaven by law-keeping is the point. Divorced Christian, don't be shocked when I tell you that if you're divorced, you're guilty of sin because newsflash, if you've never been divorced, you're still guilty of sin. You're like, Matt, you said I was a sinner because I'm divorced. Hey, non-divorced people, you're sinners too. We're all sinners. Countless, innumerable sins. Yes, the law shows us our duty, but it also makes clear our condemnation and it shows us our need for a Savior. If you don't come up short on divorce laws, 
that make you an adulterer? How do you do that if you look at a woman with lust? You've committed adultery already in your heart. It's not just divorce. If you ever look lustfully, you're still an adulterer. Married person that never pushed your wife, your, your wife away at all. You've been married. You're a sinner because you've not been a good enough husband. You've not been a good enough father. You've not been present enough. You've not loved God enough. We shouldn't be shocked when we're like, hey man, that was hard to hear. Yeah, it, all this is hard to hear. You know what makes it easy to hear? Jesus kept it all. And Jesus died for where we're sinners. And we can have this high bar. And no, we didn't jump it, but Christ did. And we aspire to be holy, but we know that the Holy One gave His life as an atonement for our sins. The call we have here is to look to Christ. Look away from ourselves. He's this kind of husband to His bride. We're that bride. He doesn't put us away. He seeks us. Even when we wander, even though we're unclean, He, doesn't put, he would have every right to put us away. But when He makes a covenant, He keeps it. And He keeps His people firm to the end. So we look to Christ. Fail, hey, marriage failure. Look to Christ. Because you're in a marriage with Him and He won't fail you. And the other call? Image Christ by being that kind of husband to your wives. You won't do it perfectly, but that's what we're called to do. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved His church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her. You see uncleanness in her? Cleanse her with the washing of the water of the Word. Love her through her unloveliness. Look to Christ and image Christ. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for being this kind of husband to us. Lord, that You, uh, you do not put us away despite our uncleanness, despite our infidelity, Lord, in our flesh and in our sin. We've gone after so many other things. We've not been faithful to You. But Lord, when we are faithless, You remain faithful still. Lord, we thank You for that. We thank You for that when You pursued us and You got us, that You keep us. And that You promise that You will present us faultless before Your presence with exceeding joy. Lord, we look forward to that day. We anticipate it. And in the meantime, encourage our hearts. Encourage us not just that we're forgiven, but that You will make us holy. And accomplish that work. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.